0: Welcome to Thinking About Religion. I'm Dale Tuggy. As far as traditional Christians are concerned, you can hold the scriptures in one hand. Things are a bit different in Islam, as my guest today explains. His name is Dr. Jonathan Brown, and he's the Al-Walid bin Talal Chair of Islamic Civilization in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Dr. Brown's studies have taken him to such countries as Egypt, Syria, Turkey, Morocco, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, south africa indonesia india and iran we'll be talking about some themes from his book misquoting muhammad the challenges and choices of interpreting the prophet's legacy dr brown welcome to thinking about religion well thanks for having me in american evangelical christianity sometimes they talk about the bible as a kind of handbook for life And it's widely held that ordinary Christians can simply read and understand the Bible, at least after it's been translated into English, and then apply the Bible to their lives. In traditional Islamic societies, is this how the Quran was viewed?
1: Oh, that's such a hard question to answer. There's a kind of a paradox, you know, a lot of Muslims, and I mean millions of Muslims. I mean, if you went into a mosque, there might be one or two Muslims just in that room A lot of Muslims memorize the entire Quran, Mm -hmm. word for word. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's a great documentary called Quran by Heart where you see this kind of international Quran competition. There's a kid from Uzbekistan, there's a girl from Bangladesh, there's a kid from uh, a boy from uh, Senegal. So, I mean, Muslims around the world memorize the entire Quran, word for word. And, you know, when Muslims pray, they recite parts of the Quran uh, word for word from memory. So in one sense, like I'd say Muslim engagement with the Quran is almost just structurally more immediate than almost any other religion that I that at least I know of, uh, both in the sense of like the memorization of the entire book for a lot of Muslims, memorization of parts of the book for a lot of other Muslims and then just everyday constant recitation. But of course, a lot of these
0: people are not Arabic speakers.
1: yeah, so then this is, this is a kind of paradox, right which is that though the Quran has immense meaning for them. And if you go to these you know Quran schools in Mali or Senegal or, or Niger or something, you see these kids just sitting there writing out the Quran on these uh, wooden boards with charcoal ink and memorizing it and then they wash the boards off with water and then they drink the water with the ink of the Quran as part of like the end of their lesson. This has immense meaning for them. There's a wonderful book called, it's been translated in English from French, called The Ambiguous Adventure by a Senegalese author named Amadou Khan. And he talks about this experience of him learning the Quran as a child and like how this words were the structure of the universe. They were the very structure of the universe. But at the same time, you know, they don't understand the words. Or if they do understand them, they are sort of you know, told what they mean. You So if you learn the meaning of the Quran by rote, it's not like you become a master of the Arabic language and then you approach the Quran de novo and you sort of have your own experience with it. You know, you're instructed to what these words mean. You learn mm-hmm. the meaning of the Quran and as the beginning of Arabic. So in that sense, there's an irony because you know, most of the Muslims in the world are not native Arabic speakers. You know, there's only, what, I can't remember, like 200, 300 million Arabs in the world or something. And, you know, if the rest of the 1.5, 1.6 billion Muslims in the world are not native Arabic speakers. And a lot of them don't know Arabic at all in terms of the meaning. They might be able to read the words. They might, be able to, they might even have memorized large chunks of the Quran, but they only know the meaning in a very kind of distant way, mm-hmm. uh, not in a kind of immediate language experience. So... You know, not the way, like, for example, even a, a good English speaker today, if they hear, you know, a Shakespearean play or if they, you know, watch like Henry the V and see his St. Crispin's Day speech, I mean, that really hits you. Mm-hmm. Some of the words might be a little weird, but I mean, it really, you still have this immediate language experience with that. I think for, you know, Muslims who aren't Arabic speakers, unless they're very educated, you know, they're really, really highly educated, Arabophone, in fact they don't have that language connection there's more of a connection to the the words as the words of god regardless of what their actual meaning is almost to the the structure of the words mm-hmm. the paradox is that compared to, let's say, a lot of evangelical Christians in in America, they have a much more immediate connection to the Quran. They recite it, they memorize it in its original language. They often memorize massive chunks of it, and perhaps the whole thing, Mm -hmm. in its original language. And yet they don't have that kind of semantic engagement with it that uh, maybe someone who sits and reads the the Bible today in Bible study would have. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, for Arabic speakers, there's a lot more likelihood that they have that connection. And I don't want to say that non-Arab or non-Arabic speaking Muslims don't have the connection at all, but it's something that I think you might, you find much more at like elite educated levels or that that experience is just, it's more mediated by instruction that they are told by their madrasa teachers are told by their teachers in school, what these words mean. Mm-hmm. And they might not have as much of a personal relationship of, of investigation of the, the scripture as other people would.
0: So in comparing the Quran to the Bible, I mean, in a sense, they're both supposed to be absolute authorities, but in the case of the Quran, typically you'll more be told what it means than sort of be able to dig through the meaning on your own.
1: Yes. uh, And again, this is kind of a big generalization. I'm generalizing across 1.5 billion people, you know, from West Africa to Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. Yes. In the sense that it's not their native language. Uh, They would have translations or they'd have commentaries in their native language. But when you're reading a translation or a commentary, you're really, in a sense, uh, being told what it means by the translator or by the commentator. There's a lot of mediation by clerical class, you know, whether it's in school or whether it's through a teacher in the mosque or something like that.
0: So, Dr. Brown, everyone nowadays has heard of the Quran. Some of us have read it all the way through. But much of your interesting book, Misquoting Muhammad, is about another class of Islamic scriptures, one which is arguably more foundational to Islamic law. Tell us about these.
1: Yeah, so this is what's called um, Hadith. Hadith are reports about the things that the Prophet Muhammad said or did, or basically his actions and his words. It's reports about his precedent and his lifestyle and his rulings. The Quran is a relatively small book. And it doesn't have a lot of legal material in it or even doctrinal material in it. A lot of it is sort of ethical exhortations, mm-hmm. reminders to, to fear God, to, to believe in God. Uh, so, I mean, even things like, you know, like the five daily prayers, the Quran never says pray five times a day. And the Quran tells you to pray. It doesn't tell you when to pray. It doesn't tell you how to pray. It doesn't tell you, you know, what to do if you make mistakes in your prayer. Mm-hmm. So these things all come from the, the teachings of the prophet. Muslim scholars have always understood these to be basically explanations of the Quran. So that the Prophet's precedent, which in Arabic is called his sunnah, his, his S-U-N-N-A, his sunnah, mm-hmm. uh, the Prophet's authoritative precedent is an infallible application of the Book of God. So it's basically the Prophet living out and applying through his words and deeds and actions the message of the Quran. So the Hadiths are one of the major ways to know about the precedent of the Prophet. Other ways include communal practice, traditions that are passed on from generation to generation. Another way would be just methods of reasoning, of legal reasoning, of thinking about what the principles of the, of the Qur'an are, how they're applied. But one of the main
0: ways is through these reports that are called hadiths. So if I go to a bookstore, why isn't there next to the Qur'an just another paperback that costs $20 and it's the hadiths?
1: Because the Hadith corpus is massive. (laughs) It's massive. (laughs) How how massive uh, are we talking? I don't think it's actually encompassable. I'll I'll tell you why. So the Quran is written down and promulgated officially within 20 years of the death of the prophet. Mm -hmm. So around 650. And even, you know, with the exception of some really kind of stubborn uh, revisionist western scholars i mean even the the state of the kind of the state of the field in western scholarship on islam is that the quran comes from the mid 7th century it comes from arabia in the mid 7th century and there's there's not really a lot of debate about that but the hadiths are not written down during the time of the prophet they're not written down in any systematic way for around 100 120 years after the death of the prophet during that 120 150 years the Muslim community goes through three civil wars and expands from basically being in Central and Western Arabia to controlling the entire Middle East and North Africa, Iran, Central Asia, into India. So Muslims have gone from being a small group of Arabs to being this kind of ruling class over an incredibly culturally heterogeneous and diverse area with everybody trying to kind of shoehorn their political, cultural, religious, legal agendas into Islam. And what better way to do that than to say, oh, the prophet said my guy should be the caliph. No, the prophet said my guy should be the caliph. No, the prophet said Persians are the best. No, the prophet said Aramaic speakers are the best, whatever. Mm -hmm. So people just started forging thousands and thousands and thousands of hadiths in the generation after the first generation of Muslims. This is just like an engine of this that goes on chugging at full speed for a good three or four centuries. Mm -hmm. So one of the problems that Muslim scholars have immediately, both Sunni and Shiite scholars, is how do they sort what are authentic words of the Prophet from the forgeries? Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of disagreement about what is authentic, what is not authentic, according to your different school of thought, according to your sectarian identity— you actually don't really have a discrete body of what you can say. These are the words of the prophet. There's not really even a limit to forgeries because you could have someone today forge a hadith. I remember during the first Gulf War, this one guy in, (laughs) I think it was in Egypt, he said he had been digging around and he found these old manuscripts and it said, uh, the prophet said that there's a man and his name will be derived from a tree and he will liberate the Little Hill Fortress. Now, a tree, that's bush, right? And then Kuwait is like a little hill fortress. So, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, someone said this. So someone made this up. And of course, everybody knew it was made up. But my point is, uh, there's no end or outer limit to these forgeries. Yeah. If you're going to say, okay, what is going to this book that you want to buy that's next to the Quran on the bookshelf in the bookstore? What is this going to be? Is this going to be Sunni hadiths? Is it going to be Shiite hadiths? Is it going to be hadiths that Sunnis believe are authentic? Or are it hadiths that Sunnis... Mm, they know they're not really true, but boy, they make a good point or, you know, but they, they're a good story. So a lot of hadiths that you hear, let's say in a mosque, and I remember hearing lots of this in, in, in mosques in my day, is you'll hear hadiths that are not actually considered to be authentic, even by Muslim scholars. Mm-hmm. And yet you'll hear the preacher use these hadiths. Why? Because maybe the prophet said them, and boy, do they help make a point you're trying to make. So, interest, like interest bearing transactions, are prohibited in Islamic law. Riba is the Arabic word for interest or mm-hmm. usury. Mm-hmm. You know, remember, in, it was in grad school in the, the khutbah, in the Friday prayer sermon, and the imam says, The Prophet said there are 70 different kinds of riba, and the least serious is the equivalent of h- having sex with your mother. <laughs> right? So I was like, Whoa. Wow, that Gets your attention so really I, I, fast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I went in. You know, I was thinking, I was like, boy, maybe I shouldn't have that savings account. You know, like my like one percent savings account or whatever. <laughs> if you look at Muslim scholars, they'll say, no, this is not this is not a reliable hadith. Uh-huh. But you find it in lots of hadith collections. Why? Because it's a great way to get people not to do riba. Mm-hmm. The kind of irony is that Islamic thought is, in a lot of ways, I, I call it a cult of authenticity. You know, Muslims are. Islamic thought is obsessed with textual authenticity. The textual authenticity of the Quran is everything. The fact that you can go back to this scripture as it was originally revealed in its original language, uncorrupted, Mm -hmm. is essential. And the obsession over making sure you have the authentic precedent of the prophet is also a major theme in Islamic thought. But at the same time, the same scholars, they realize like, "Mm, sometimes there's these... Hadiths that maybe, okay, maybe we, there's 20% chance the Prophet said it. So we're not lying. You know, he, maybe he said it, but according to the methods we developed, he probably didn't say it, but it's such a great tool for teaching or for you know, summing up something that, that it's used anyway. According to studies of, let's say, like Muslim estate documents in 17th century Cairo, the second most commonly owned book by Muslims after the Quran was this book called Dala'il al-Khayrat, Signs of the Good, uh-huh. which is a book of prayers said for the prophet. Mm-hmm. And the first chapter is just all these hadiths about the reward that you get as a Muslim for sending your peace and blessings upon the prophet, saying prayers for the prophet. Right. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of hadiths in that chapter, not only are they they're unreliable, I mean, they're just utter fabrications. So you could make a good argument that if you wanted to say, what is the way that a typical Muslim at some point in Islamic history has interacted with the Hadith tradition? You could say this book is a pretty good representation, would be a pretty good candidate for that. And yet it's not at all representative of what Muslim scholars would have said are, is the authentic precedent of the prophet.
0: So you've got this gigantic mass of reports. And as you said, it's it's unmanageably large and it has to get pared down it has to be cropped somehow and at the popular level people do it in their own way but then the scholars do it a different way
1: yeah in sunni islam you have basically uh, six books there are six collections that are written in the uh ninth century that are compiled and uh, two of them are considered to be very authentic like the the contents are considered to be you know, the most reliably authenticated sayings of the prophet. These are what's called the Sahih the two authentic or two sound Hadith collections. Mm -hmm. One by a scholar named Al-Bukhari, who died um, 870. And then one other one by his student, a guy named Muslim, who's also Muslim, Mm -hmm. Muslim is his name. He died 875 of the common era. Mm -hmm. These books are the most reliable in Sunni Islam. And then there's four other ones that are widely cited as well. But of course, the irony is that those four other ones have a lot of hadiths in them that Muslim scholars acknowledge are, are actually very unreliable. But they're in there for because sometimes because they're very good at making a point, uh, sometimes because they deal with an issue which is not considered to be core to law and theology. You know, for example, there's a hadith that would say, um, you know, it's wonderful to be good to your mother. Okay, we already know it's good to be good to your mother from the Quran and, uh, and reliable hadith. so this doesn't really add anything. But it might be an unreliable version, so that's uh, that's the kind of material. And then in Shiite Islam, they have four main collections.
0: When thinking about religion returns, Doctor Brown and I discussed the all-encompassing nature of Islamic law. <laughs> One thing I think that Westerners and non-Muslims a lot of times don't grasp about Islam is sort of how all-encompassing Islamic law is supposed to be. Tell us a little bit about the all-comprehensive nature of Islamic law and how this relates to Mm. the need for all of these oral reports.
1: As far as I know, there's nothing in the Quran or even the Sunnah of the Prophet where It explicitly says, you know, you Muslims, you need to, whenever you're trying to figure out what's right or wrong or what you should do, you should think about what God wants. But it's just assumed and taken for granted from the very beginning of the Islamic tradition and never questioned until the, essentially until the modern period, until kind of Muslims come into contact with Protestant West in the modern period. Uh, It's never questioned that Every conceivable action, every conceivable thing you could say or do has some ruling in the eyes of God. So, can I drink the coffee with my right hand or, or with my left hand? Mm-hmm. Can I wear these pants I'm wearing? Can I wear cloth socks? Uh If I walk outside and I see a plant on the ground, can I eat that plant? Can I, you know, every question you could possibly have, God has an answer for whether that thing is prohibited, required, disliked, recommended, or just neutral, Mm -hmm. right? And so, what's called the ulama, Muslim scholars, from the very beginning of Islam, their job is to answer these questions. And they do so using the resources at their hands, which are, first the Quran, then the son of the prophet. And of course, there's different competing understandings of what the the best way to know the precedent of the prophet is. Is it through lived tradition? Is it through traditions of problem solving and reasoning? Is it through just kind of collecting and compiling hadiths and sort of trying to figure out which hadith actually bears on that one particular question? Another tool they might have is analogical reasoning. So, you know, if the Quran says, you know, that um, wine is prohibited— well, we assume it's because the wine makes you intoxicated and kind of irresponsible and reckless and mm-hmm. things like that and lose your inhibitions. So then what happens about I come across this other drink or this, you know, whiskey or beer or marijuana or heroin or whatever? You know, so do these things apply? Are these things prohibited as well? Kind of by analogical reasoning. And then part of it is simply just, OK, what is in the best interests of the Muslims? What does, you know, what overall does God want from us in, in the world? Like, you know. Would this ruling cause undue hardship uh, for Muslims? So these are the kind of reasoning that Muslim scholars have engaged in for 1400 years. I think part of this was simply trying to manage a world that was incredibly diverse. I mean, Muslims found themselves ruling over Buddhists in Central Asia and Jews in Egypt and, you know, Christians in North Africa and and Muslims th- throughout that entire world, right? And so they saw the variety of culture and experience and they realized these people really don't have a lot in common. And so if you want to have a kind of a system of norms and a legal code that can actually bind this universe together, it, it has to be drawn from these, these sources that Muslims agreed upon, the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet. And so that's why they tried to kind of answer every question they could through those sources. I think that really only gets challenged in the kind of modern period when Muslims, especially at the late 19th century, start to be, you know, under colonial domination by Britain and France and the Netherlands. And they kind of come face to face with this sort of Protestant understanding of Christianity, which says, no, no, you know, religion is really only supposed to occupy this this small part of life, a private part of life. And law and public space are, are supposed to be controlled by the, sort of these secular notions of value and morality. And so then Muslims start having to deal with that.
0: Well, I want to come back to the modern era because there's so much interesting discussion in your book about how to negotiate modernity and traditional Islamic tradition. But before we leave the classical traditions so they're trying to build this whole systematic law, which kind of dictates a whole way of life. It's kind of creating a culture, a, an international culture, in a sense. At the same time, they don't want to just use any oral report, right? Nobody wants to build something on a forgery. So how do the scholars pare down this mass of reports into what's usable?
1: There's two competing approaches that Muslim scholars use. One ultimately wins out. The second one, which I'll mention... The first one is to say, you know, if you want to know what is reliably the words of the prophet and what isn't, then you compare it to the Quran, you compare it to what you know about the prophet's character, what you know, what what's reasonable, what reason tells you. And if it sort of matches those things, then it's something the prophet said. And if it contradicts those things, then it's not something the prophet said. That was especially advanced by Muslim rationalists in the early Islamic period. Mm-hmm. Now, when I use the word rationalist, I, it's important to remember that I don't mean that they would have gone along the street and say you can't park your car in that space; it's too small. Like you know, they're not reasonable in the sense of you know, one person can't eat a thirty-five foot hoagie sandwich or something. When I mean reasonable, they they rationalists they believe that human faculty of reason can access truth and give you information about the divine.
0: They put trust in speculative philosophy, basically. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly.
1: Spe- separately from revelation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other school approach said, wait a second, the Quran has warned us that communities go astray when they start following their own whims, their own sense of right and wrong, when, when they start speculating about the nature of God. And what Muslims are told to do is to stick to the Quran and the Sunnah of the Prophet, okay? And not to just indulge your whims, your whims and reasoning. That will lead you astray. The problem is, how do you authenticate what might be words of the prophet versus what aren't words of the prophet? If, right. if you're saying, you know, you don't trust your own reason. Yeah. And we're past the lifetime of any eyewitnesses here. We're a couple. Yeah, exactly. Years so what you, what you try to do is you say, okay, let's try and reconstruct the transmission of these things. We'll find out who is a, you know, who's a reliable transmitter, who isn't, who's corroborated and who isn't. And we'll look at these different chains of transmission. We'll try and figure out what is reliably transmitted. The idea there was you, you try and take reason out of the equation because human reason is not reliable. And so this was the approach advocated by early Sunni Islam. And what ended up happening is by the 10 hundreds, these two approaches sort of merge in the Sunni and Shiite traditions. And you get an approach which says that, okay, if something clearly contradicts the Quran, if it clearly contradicts the established precedent of the prophet, if it just totally contradicts reason, then it can't be something the Prophet said. But we're going to try and think of every possible way of reconciling this alleged hadith with the Quran and with the Sunnah and with reason. Like if we'll give it incredible charity and we'll really uh, try and exhaust every possible explanation before we throw something out because of its meaning. That became the kind of orthodox Muslim approach And uh, that was not really controversial until, again, the the kind of modern period when Muslims, through uh, discovery of Western science, through kind of exposure to modern Protestant European notions of social sensibility and religion, some Muslims became skeptical and and sort of disenchanted with many aspects of the Hadith literature. And so they would use the meanings of the—they said, you know, the meaning of these Hadiths are absurd or reprehensible, and so we can't accept them. That's a big— area, a huge kind of fault line in Islamic thought today between what you might call reformists or liberal Muslims and, and traditionalist Muslims, is how you, to what extent you indulge the rejection of hadiths based on their meaning in the modern period.
0: When thinking about religion returns, we discuss a few of the most notorious and controversial hadith reports. <laughs> Brown, in your book, Quoting Muhammad, you have very interesting discussions about how various traditional or modernizing more recent Islamic scholars have dealt with what look like strange or morally problematic passages in the Hadith or in the Quran. I was wondering if we could discuss one of each kind, one strange and one that's morally problematic. So one famous report says, and uh, this is in the al-Bakari collection, I believe, It says, if a fly lands in your drink, push it all the way under, then throw the fly out and drink. On one of the fly's wings is disease, on the other is its cure. How would the scholars deal with this report?
1: This is a kind of a great case study uh, or kind of paradigmatic example of um, the debate over hadiths in the modern period. You know, when people start discussing this, let's say the late 1800s, early 1900s, you know, the rise of germ theory and stuff like that, some Muslim kind of reformists or liberal Muslim scholars would say, it's not these guys' fault. They didn't know this stuff is not true. They didn't know this was a, st- this was a dangerous idea. This clearly can't be something the Prophet said, because he would never advance an idea that's so dangerous, you know, in terms of sanitation, you know, mm-hmm. health, public health. And mm-hmm. But I mean, now we know it can't be true, so get rid of it. Problem is that this Hadith had been authenticated by the medieval scholars who were seen as the kind of acme of the Islamic scholarly method for authenticating Hadiths. Mm -hmm. So if they messed up on that, then it really calls into question the entire edifice. There's a huge uh, uh, liability here, a potential consequence of rejecting this. So this Hadith and others like it are a really huge subject for debate in the late 19th, early 20th century and until today. The funny thing is... Interesting is that this hadith was the center of the same debate in the 800s and the 700s and 800s. This same hadith of the fly was being debated over by Muslim rationalists and early Sunnis in the 700s. Hmm. The Muslim rationalists would say, How can it be that an animal both has a disease and a cure on its body? It doesn't work. How can they both be present? Right? So they were having the exact same debate, and then the Sunnis said, exactly what a traditional Sunday would say today, which is your little brain does not have the capacity to question God's wisdom or the knowledge of the prophet. If they say this, your job is to say, we hear and we obey. And if you don't do that, you will destroy the mechanisms by which we have received our religion. So the debate is exactly the same 1,300 years later. And in one sense, and this is one could argue hard to avoid, You're simply left with that choice. You're, You're left with a choice of saying, do I reject this because it doesn't seem to make sense to me based on pretty good reasoning? Or do I accept that God and the prophet know better and that I should obey them?
0: I mean, on the face of it, an outsider might wonder, well, Muhammad is a real 7th century man. I mean, why can't he just believe in a popular superstition... Not everything he says has to be a prophecy from God, so why not just say that about it?
1: Uh, yes, this is a good point. So that's what some Muslim scholars said in the 20th century. They said, they said, look, uh, this actually may have been something the prophet said, but the prophet isn't an astronomer. The prophet's not a public health specialist, right? So he doesn't know that flies are unhealthy. He's just saying what you know people say today, like, you know, don't... Uh, I don't know what's something people say today, like you know, don't uh, don't eat after 6 p.m. or something if you want to lose weight. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But here's the problem, which is, wait a second, if the the prophet is infallible, there's a very famous report it's considered to be authentic where the prophet is he sees these farmers uh, kind of planting uh, young date palms, and he gives them advice and doesn't work, and he says, you know better the affairs of your world than I do. But if I tell you something from God, then I don't make mistakes about that. But then the question is, if Islam is a religion that is totally comprehensive in our lives, then what exactly doesn't come from God, right? I mean, if we're supposed to think about what does God want from us in everything we do, whether it's how we dress or how we eat or how we sleep or how we talk, right, then where exactly is this secular space, this worldly space that the prophet is saying we know more than he does? You know, it, it's hard to tell. And is this fly example one of those examples? Because the prophet says in the Hadith, he says, if a fly lands in one of your drinks, then push it under and then take it out because one wing is a disease and the other wing is cured. cure. Interestingly, he doesn't actually say drink it, which is interesting. He That's just assumed to be the case. So... It's entirely possible that what you're saying is true. That maybe he was he was wrong about this, but then you start skating perilously close to having a debate about well, what other things could he have been just talking about local custom regarding you know what other things could he have been saying that were just based on on superstition or, or beliefs that were prevalent at the time, but which we now know are false. Mm-hmm. It kind of opens a Pandora's box of challenging all sorts of aspects of the religion. This hadith. Is like one of those, you'll you hear people bring this up over and you know, over Muslims who've lost their faith in the Hadith tradition or who stop identifying with traditional Islamic thought. You know, A lot of times it's Hadiths like this that provoke that because they'll say, You're telling me I have to accept this, and I just, no, I'm not going to eat something that a fly landed on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. So I don't believe this. So uh, I guess I'm not a traditional Muslim in that case. It's really um, an issue where people have to choose kind of how they want to view the world and what they want to believe. Mm-hmm. My own opinion is that, uh, well, it's, I think it's really interesting, actually, that, so there's another, an early scholar, one of the founders of the four Muslim schools of law, a guy named Ashafi. he died at 820 of the common era. He actually talks about if a fly lands on, um, like in a pile of urine or a, p- a puddle of urine mm-hmm. and then lands on your clothing you know he says that you, you don't have to change the clothing because you would constantly have to change your clothes because you can't control like where flies land on you and stuff mm-hmm. what i thought was interesting is that he 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 looks at the flies feet right so when we talk about you know public health problems of flies we don't talk about their wings we talk about their feet and their mouths, right? So why does it, why are fly is dangerous? Because they go, especially in areas where there's like open defecation and mm-hmm. stuff, they go and they land on feces and they come and land on your food and they walk on it and they, you know, do their little Jeff Goldblum fly eating thing on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is a totally different issue. The Hadith doesn't address that. If the Islamic tradition from the very early period is saying that what flies land on, if it's ritually unclean, that can affect your ability to wear or eat something, that's a separate issue that's not even addressed by the Hadith. So if a fly lands in my house, if a fly lands on something and then it lands in my drink, I'll push the fly in and take it out and I'll drink it. And I'll follow the Hadith of the Prophet. But if I'm in you know, India or some place like that where there's a strong likelihood that they're flying and landing on things that are richly unclean, or even outside like in a public park or something here in the US, I would uh, not do that not because I'm disregarding the Prophet's Hadith, but because the Prophet's Hadith doesn't address the issue of that fly having landed on something that was ritually unclean.
0: So that's an approach of trying to sort of find the underlying reason or the underlying concern and then apply that rather than just focus on what's explicitly said?
1: What you're saying is something different. That would be kind of, what was the intention of a law? So if you said... For example, the Quranic verses on inheritance that say that a daughter should get one half the the inheritance of a son. Um, You could say, well, this was revealed at a time when men owned everything, and it's actually trying to create some degree of—to carve out some rights for women. But today, when um, women and men are both earning money and they're both professionally—have the ability to be professionally successful, then— that same intention today would lead us to, to change this law. The law itself was only meant for certain circumstances. Those circumstances have changed. With the fly hadith, it's tough because it's not actually saying w- I mean it does say why you know, it says there's disease on one wing and, and a cure on the other, mm-hmm. but basically, you, you're forced to say the prophet was either the prophet was wrong or he was right. Mm-hmm. and saying the prophet was wrong is very dangerous. Mm-hmm. So what my approach is on this hadith is simply just to look at another angle of it, which is to say that none of this actually talks about the fact that the fly might have landed in something dirty, which Muslim scholars from the early period realized was a different discussion.
0: Well, one of the great strengths of your book, Miss Cody Muhammad, is you seize the bull by the horns and discuss a number of things that have become controversial in the modern time, especially. So let's talk about one of those in the Quran. Surah 4, the fourth chapter of the Quran, advises husbands whose wives have somehow seriously disrespected them to, quote, admonish them, leave them alone in their beds, and strike them, end quote. And critics have argued that this just is authorizing domestic violence. So, how have modernists tried to deal with interpreting and applying this passage?
1: Well, what's interesting about this verse is the prophet actually says things like, you know, the best of you wouldn't strike your wives.
0: Mm-hmm. That's in the Hadith somewhere.
1: Yeah, yeah, he says that in a reliable Hadith. And it's also said about him in another Hadith that he never struck his wives or his servants. You know, he never struck anybody except when he was fighting in war. Mm-hmm. So you have this, on one hand, of what seems to be a general command given by the Quran. The Prophet himself is actually saying that the best of you would not actually ever strike your wives and that this is not something you should do. Mm-hmm. So there's this tension there, and then that actually is played out in the, in the Islamic law over the centuries as these, the issue, this kind of law on how husbands and wives should handle disputes. How it's dealt with is that some Muslim scholars you know, would, would actually kind of follow on that prophetic model of discouraging anyone from striking their wives and say that you can't strike your wife you know, you sort of left with a question of like, hey, well, how do you reconcile that opinion with the fact that the Quran actually offers this as a, a possibility? Mm-hmm. What becomes the kind of mainstream position in Islamic law is that husbands can strike their wives, but they go back to another hadith of the Prophet where he says that you can't strike them in a way that is dar mubarrah, which is uh, strike them in a way that would cause any harm or leave any mark. That becomes sort of the standard Muslim opinion in Islamic law, which is that, First you admonish your wife, then you stop sleeping with her. Then, then if she still continues to engage in this kind of egregiously disobedient behavior, then you can strike them, but in a way that doesn't leave a mark or cause any, uh, any injury. As I said, what's interesting is that you do have this, like even from the time of the prophet himself, you have this kind of anxiety, I don't want to say anxiety, but sort of a tension with that verse where the prophet's saying, no, no, you should. this should not be something that you do. And certainly not a good Muslim wouldn't do this. Now, of course, this is not really controversial until the late 19th century, early 20th century. Mm-hmm. It's not controversial because it's not controversial in Western law, right? So, I mean, <laughs> you re- we look at British judges who are applying Muslim law in India, in British India, even in the late 19th century, they'll say, well, this is just like British law. Right? I mean, British law allows... Husbands to use reasonable discipline against their wives. It's really when you get into kind of the mid 20th century concern about domestic violence, rape law reform, that you start. This starts to become a big, uh, in fact, maybe the greatest problem that Muslims cha- face—not mm-hmm. in the, you know social problem, but I mean in the sense of interpretive problem. Because you know, with hadiths, you can always say, you know, what I just don't believe the Prophet said this. I, I, don't, I don't care what the consequences are. Mm-hmm. I just don't believe you said mm-hmm. this. This verse on wife beating is in the Quran, and you can't say it's not there. Uh, so there's one approach by Muslim scholars, that some more reformist Muslim scholars have said, the verse never meant beat. The verse Adirbuhunna means leave them, basically just abandon them, mm-hmm. leave them, like leave your wife. And they say that that word can mean that in certain circumstances. The problem with that is if you choose that interpretation, then it means that all the hadiths and all the Quranic commentary and all the law based on that is
0: wrong. Yeah. A thousand years of people have been misreading that somehow.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So you get out of this problem, but the cost you pay is essentially the the stability of the entire tradition that you're trying to preserve to begin with.
0: Mm-hmm. There's so much interesting material in your book about how the legal traditions, both pre-modern and modern, deal with some of these issues. And it seems to me there's kind of a I don't know what you call it a moderating trend in all of it. So, for instance, you discuss the tradition of cutting off a thief's hand, and basically they you know they raise the evidentiary standards so high that it's almost never applied. And that's one way of sort of making the entire law, I don't know, kinder and gentler. Could that be what's going on with these Hadith reports that you mentioned? So that Muhammad never yeah. struck anybody or that he only uh, said that you could strike lightly. Could that be people, they they see this in the Quran and they, well, let's not take this too far people. And, and so they're already mm. trying to moderate it at that early stage. You raise a good question, I, I, but I
1: think there's an, there's an important distinction to make, right? So, the Quranic rules on punishments, things like stoning, hand-cutting, right? The Islamic legal tradition on that is from the very beginning, from within the Quranic text itself, mm-hmm. has this intentional moderation. How do we know it's intentional? Because this goes back to the verse about uh, punishment for uh, sort of illicit sex. Mm-hmm. The Quran says, If one of your women engages in sexual indiscretion, then punish them with a hundred lashes. This is then expended also to men, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but this is the specific verse. But another verse says, if you accuse someone of this, you have to have three other witnesses. And if you don't have three other witnesses, you will be punished by 80 lashes for slander. Mm-hmm. And then the prophet adds to that in his, in his hadiths, that if it's sex, you actually have to have seen as the Hadith says, you have to have seen the like eyeliner pencil go into the the eyeliner case. Do you understand, right? Uh-huh. You actually have to have seen penetration. <laughs> right. So four people have to have seen penetration to occur. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that and you make the accusation, you get lashed 80 times. Mm-hmm. So within the Quranic text itself, you can't say this is, you know, you know, if the Quran said stone people who have who commit adultery, and then Muslim scholars come along, and they say, "Oh boy, this is really serious. We better figure out some way to moderate this." Oh yeah, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. This is internal to the Quranic text. It's it's it giving you extremely harsh punishment, and then itself providing mm-hmm. it's saying that it's very hard to prove this. Mm-hmm. The reason for that is, and in, in, I feel this is pretty clear, that it's very common in, in pre-modern law codes. To have very serious punishments, but then have mechanisms built into the law to make it very hard to apply those punishments. Why? Because pre-modern states didn't really have mechanisms for preventative policing or investigative policing. Basically, to deter people away from doing crimes, you had to scare the bejesus out of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was a good way. But you don't actually want to have to stone people and cut their hands Mm -hmm. off. You want them to be scared and to realize the severity of these crimes. Mm -hmm. The difference between that and the quranic verse on beating is that the quran does not include something that says but only beat your wife if you know she's taken two frying pans and like bashed you on your head between them or something that That doesn't create any situation where it really leaves this up to the, the spouse it's unclear when it kicks in the prophet then creates caution around that but it's not internal to the Quran. If you're a Muslim scholar or someone discussing this from a Muslim perspective, you're immediately left with the possibility that that hadith is made up, and then you're left with this problem, which is, wait a second, you've opened a door, even a little bit of door to spousal abuse, and of course, men are going to run right through this. How can you open the door and then only have the prophet's sort of hortatory cautioning about this and not have him say do not do this right so you you open the door you don't close it all the way and of course abuse happens so that's the kind of maybe the main anxiety and objection around this from a lot of muslim mm-hmm. scholars today or muslim intellectuals and muslims today
0: when thinking about religion returns attempts to reform islamic tradition and what the future of sunni islam might look like Dr. Brown, I was really curious after reading this book, there were a lot of accounts of attempts to reform in the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. And it seemed to me that in some cases, the reformers didn't necessarily get very far and Also, there's been this massive shift from in the pre-modern era, there were these dominant schools of interpretation and scholars really played this mediating role in how the Quran and just Islamic tradition is understood by the masses. And it seems to me that that's not not exactly coming back and, and also the regional barriers have been broken down. Where does Islamic tradition go from here? Is there going to be a new school of interpretation at some point that's international? Is there going to be a reformist branch? How do you see this developing? I'm sorry, that's a huge question. (laughs)
1: No, no, it's a a $64,000 question in a lot of ways. Basically, in one sense, I'd say that one has to remember that if Muslims were hanging out in a room, having this discussion privately, that would be one thing but this whole discourse when European and American Christians and have discussions about the abolition of slavery or reform or whatever they have this from a position of confidence uh, and superiority they don't they're not being pushed and directed and pulled in any way mm-hmm. Muslims have this discussion under colonial rule and then under essentially what you might consider kind of the imperialism of global western consumer capitalist culture Mm -hmm. right so if you say like that hadith of the fly it's not just about, hey, wait a second, let's talk about where exactly the lines are of where the Prophet's revealed knowledge is versus his own kind of speculation or his own restatement of existing superstitions, or let's talk about whether or not the system of Muslim authentication has worked in this case. It immediately becomes are you adopting the modern Western worldview? Or are you going to have the traditional authentic Islamic worldview? Mm-hmm. And that's a political position. Mm. Are you going to wear a tie, a suit and tie? Or are you going to wear a robe and a turban? It's a kind of a culture war position. Yeah, it's, a, It's. I mean, it, it, that, that's a, that's actually a great analogy, mm-hmm. right? You can imagine Americans today having a debate, you know, is any number of things we could do, Kavanaugh hearings, like anything, right? Mm-hmm. Anything we could talk about that is not really about that thing. It's really about which of these two giant poles that are just sucking everything towards them, which, are, which, which one are you going to go towards? Mm-hmm. It's impossible to have an independent discussion, a kind of Hmm. authentic, real discussion. So that's one reason that when you sort of you talk about the success or failure of Muslim reformists is that debates about reform or debates about proper understanding of Islam in the modern world, a world that is very technologically, economically, socially different than the world 200 years ago. Muslims aren't allowed to, and they aren't able to have these debates in a kind of, I hate to use this word, almost like a safe space. They, they can't have this in a space that's insulated from these political pressures that just pull everything mm-hmm. uh, apart. Mm-hmm. And let's be honest, right? A lot of Western discussions of, you know, why don't Muslims reform? Why can't Muslims be like us? Are really about political domination. You know, when people talk about the problems of Iranian, the Islamic Republic of Iran, They might be talking about the treatment of women, but what they're really talking about is why don't they accept American political domination? You can't separate these. It's not like Muslims are imagining this dynamic. The dynamic is there Mm -hmm. and sometimes even intentionally there from the point of view of, let's say, American or just generally Western culture or American politics. So uh, that's one thing. The the second thing you mentioned about is, you know, you talked about is like the role of the, the ulama as mediators you know, here you can almost go to sort of Protestant Reformation and the use of print and things like that, that uh, Muslims don't really adopt print until the 19th century. And one of the reasons is because Muslim scholars understand that writing is dangerous. Hmm. They want to control access to writing and they want to control access to reading because if you let people write and read on their own, God knows what they're going to come up with. So I'm always sort of amused by this idea, you know, when you read like, you know, some mags, like The Economist will have some article about how Muslims are starting to challenge tradition and, you know, come to their own ideas about what their religion means. That's a dice roll. And this is precisely what, you know, Catholic critics of the Reformation said. Yeah, you might get some guy who comes up with a moderate, wonderful understanding of Christianity, but you might get the Anabaptist Kingdom of Munster or something, mm-hmm. where people are complete lunatics and are going around executing people if they don't support polygamy, mm-hmm. right? So today, ISIS or some lone wolf terrorist, you say, "Oh, how could he? How could he have come to this understanding?" Well, he just did what you said he should do. He went on his own and he decided he wanted to understand the religion. Mm-hmm. When you break down interpretive kind of structures of interpretive control, you get reformation, but you also get things that are out of control.
0: Does the Internet and just the ability to read the Quran? I mean, are we heading in the direction where in 100 years your average Muslim will have a study Quran? Which will just have some. Short well, there notes is there there
1: is a study Quran
0: now, and they just use that to bypass. I mean, that's going to have tradition traditional guidance obviously in it. Yeah, but is that going to be the extent of traditional input then in the future, or is there is is there enough structure well, to uh, kind of?
1: So I would say this. I would say, as with prints, uh, and the internet, mm-hmm. um, people have the capacity to access information, and they have a selection of choices interpretive choices that they don't have if they're simply going to their local village imam, who's the one person who's going to tell them how to understand their religion. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you also have the possibility for voices and institutions to try and increase their presence in that marketplace of ideas and to attract readers or viewers to influence people to sort of potentially dominate that space. Mm-hmm. So choice and technologies that allow people to access material directly are destabilizing, but they also are uh media and fora that structures of interpretation interpretive control can use to expand their own control. Mm-hmm. So in places like Saudi Arabia and Egypt or the UAE these countries are extremely active mm-hmm. in dominating how people understand religion in their inside their national borders. Despite the, the fact you have the internet and books and all this stuff, they simply control what books are there. They control what websites people go to. They fund people to have more ability, more presence in the internet than or on TV than other people might. And so, you know, states especially have the power to dominate these media. Tradition here, I mean the the desire for holders of power and influence to assert interpretive control. They can do so in this varied, newly varied, and changing marketplace, just as people did with print in the past. Mm-hmm. And then I think your last question was about: Is there kind of an international? You have before in, in Sunni Islam, you had kind of four schools of law, yeah. and now is there kind of some modern version? I, I think, in one sense. You know if you're a Muslim living in Pakistan there's really only one school of law there. there's a Hanafi school of Law and you know you Muslim scholars in Pakistan will d- discuss issues like organ donation and uh, Bitcoin and all that stuff and they'll come up with their opinions and but they'll do so from the Hanafi framework and Muslims there will pretty much live within that world because that's the world that th- they live in um, same thing in North Africa where it's mostly Maliki school of law mm-hmm i think that where you see the real kind of formation of an international approach is with muslim minorities in the west because they come from lots of different national origins and they're also in situations that muslim like you know in the muslim world muslim majority world you don't have to worry about having a place to pray i mean there's always a place to pray right. uh, whereas you know in the in the u.s you know, might not be a place to pray for your you know it, you might not be able to find a restaurant that doesn't serve alcohol, if you want, if you're very strict about that, or a place that serves halal meat. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got a Bosnian Muslim and a Muslim from West Africa and an Arab Muslim and a Pakistani Muslim. And so they're all kind of, you don't have one unified tradition to draw on. So in those areas what you've seen, especially Muslims in the West is is like they're kind of creating their own, what some people call uh, jurisprudence of minorities, their own kind of minority understandings of Islam that, Sort of take a bit from this and a bit from that to come up with a kind of amalgamated, hybrid understanding of Islam and Islamic law. Mm-hmm.
0: So that's one more competitor. It may be in a local marketplace more than internationally. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: But to be you know to be honest, I think if you looked internationally today. The major debate amongst Muslims isn't over necessarily how you understand Islamic law. Mm -hmm. It's about the role of the state and where that state falls in the struggle over the future direction of mankind. I mean, I know that sounds grandiose, but think about this, right? So Saudi Arabia is a very conservative country, Mm -hmm. but they are... Very happy to ally with Israel. They are very happy to in in places like uh, Morocco, which is sort of in the same camp that they they, they do things like um, or in Tunisia, they're now trying to make it illegal for someone to follow the Quranic rules of inheritance. Mm-hmm. So what you see is even some of the more traditional, conservative, traditionally conservative countries, they are their governments are actually proposing a liberalization or moderation of religious law, Mm -hmm. but provided that it is done with the permission and under the control of the state. And they do so in an effort to say, we are modern, Western-friendly states. And so it comes along with things like going along with Western European or sort of NATO and American political priorities. Mm -hmm. Whereas other Muslims say... No, this is unacceptable. It's not unacceptable because you're liberal. You're liberalizing. You're moder. You're you're, you're becoming moderate. A lot of those Muslims might actually support or moderating reforms of Islamic law, but they see these as not uh, sincere, but rather they're simply attempts to placate the West as part of a political process, mm-hmm. a part of building a political alliance with forces that a lot of Muslims globally see as unjust, not just sort of. Dominating, but as un, uh, dominating in an unjust way. So you could think about kind of global north versus global south or kind of global imperial versus global subalterns. In a way, Islamic law is simply being contested between kind of global capitalist versus global subaltern, global neoliberal versus global oppressed. Sometimes I look back and five years ago and sometimes I pinch myself, like what the heck is happening? It's just... I mean, I was, where was it? There was it a couple of years ago, Tony Blair was giving a speech. It was, I think, 2014 saying we need to embrace the liberal and moderate Islam of Saudi Arabia and reject the Islamic extremism of the Muslim Brotherhood. Okay. <laughs> that's
0: insane. I mean, that is insane. Say, say a little more about why, in your view, that's insane. I think that'll strike a lot of uh, Brits and Americans as, as sensible.
1: Because has anyone like checked what Saudi Arabia, (laughs) has anyone ever thought about, Saudi Arabia is a country that actually implements Sharia law directly. Uh Like they, they have a Sharia judiciary. But they're moderate because they cooperate with us. They moderate because they're politically moderate. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas the Muslim Brotherhood government in Egypt, these guys are wearing like ties. They're saying part of the Sharia is that we don't implement the Sharia. You know, we have a state run by institutions, so even a Christian can be president. It's not a problem. I mean, if you look at, you know, Muslim Brotherhood or different Islamist groups have been at the forefront of arguing for reforms in Islamic law mm. in the 20th century but they're not quote unquote moderate because their idea is that Muslims will use their religion to create political independence. So you have a situation where Islamic extremism versus Islamic moderation are not about what we would think about in terms of liberal and conservative views of religion, Mm -hmm. kind of Orthodox Jew versus reformed Jew Mm -hmm. or evangelical Christian versus lapsed mainstream Protestant Christian. Mm But it's, it's become transposed into whether or not you support the kind of—and I don't even want to say American-dominated because now countries like China are just as interested in this—is a, a sort of state-dominated and state-controlled world of religion versus a world of religion where the traditionally oppressed or powerless or subalterns use and enjoy religion as a space to create independent existence. You know, a lot of people who were Islamists in the 20th century started out as Marxists or kind of anti-colonialists or even nationalists, mm-hmm. because Islamism simply became another me- the the best mechanism for pushing back against colonialism or, or you know post-colonial cultural imperialism or political imperialism, right? So th- these two things become inextricably mixed.
0: Yeah in a way there's no sort of isolating out just a purely religious component which has no implications for government yes dr brown thanks so much for talking with us
1: it has been a pleasure i hope i did a good job
0: muhammad either was or was not the last and greatest prophet sent by the one true god in our culture, many would assume that one couldn't possibly know or have a reasonable belief either way. But I don't see why not. And so it seems to me this allegedly historical material is relevant to those among us who are trying to make up our minds. We can look in the Quran, We can read the earliest surviving biography of him, called the Sirat Rasul Allah by Ibn Ishaq. And we can wade into the vast ocean of the Hadith reports. When we do, we'll immediately be looking for the help of scholars like Dr. Brown. This week's Thinking Music has been the track Between Worlds Instrumental by Tobias Weber. I'm Dale Tuggy, and this has been Thinking About Religion. Thanks for listening.